Genesis chapter 20. Elspeth's going to come read the entire chapter to us this morning. Genesis chapter 20. There are still a few more scripture journal, Genesis scripture journals in the back. If anybody still has not gotten one and wants one, they're on the back on the bookcase. If you need to get one, you can have one. Is it turned on? Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see and that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech... Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thank to God. All right, well, we left Abraham prior to chapter 20, back in chapter 18. You guys remember chapter 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah? So we left Abraham. He had just peered down on Sodom and Gomorrah as fire and ashes falling down on it. And you remember, he had had that conversation with God. Hey, if there's only a couple people there that are righteous, will you not spare everyone? You're going to kill the righteous with the unrighteous, right? So he has that conversation. We left him there. We had the whole Sodom and Gomorrah story in chapter 19. And now we reunite 
with Sarah and with Abraham as they leave their home in Mamre and they head down to a place called Gerar, which is where the Philistines live. So they're in the land now of the Philistines. And we only get two sentences into Abraham and Sarah's journey and we are immediately met with a crisis. Do you see the crisis in verse 3? It is a, sorry, verse 2. It is a major crisis. Here it is. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abimelech took Sarah. This is a major crisis. I don't know if you guys are like English teachers, and you know how stories evolve, how you go from you know, the plot development and you get some characters, then you reach this climax and there has to be a resolution. Well, this is the peak right here. This is the crisis of this story. Abimelech has taken Sarah. Now, I hope that you feel the tension that's here because Sarah is supposed to have Isaac by Abraham, not Abimelech. And time is ticking because in chapter 17 and 18, God has told Sarah and Abraham, in a year from now, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be Isaac. And probably a month or so has already passed by since God made that promise to them. So time is ticking and Sarah is not with Abraham. Now, we need to remind ourselves why this is such a crisis, because this is a massive crisis. Why is this baby Isaac so important? Well, according to chapter 12, you need to look back there, you can later, God promised Abraham to make him a great nation, and he says to him, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham and Sarah were to have a child, we find out later, later his name is going to be Isaac, and through him, all the families of the world are going to be blessed. So this baby is very important. So Sarah being separated from Abraham is a major, major crisis. In chapter 17, God tells Abraham that through his offspring, there's going to be an everlasting covenant. So if Abraham's not with Sarah, there's no Isaac, and there's no everlasting covenant. This baby is really important, and it's really important that it's Abraham and Sarah's baby because it's through them that all the families will be blessed. Now, what does it have to do with us sitting in Mount Airy, Maryland in 2022? Well, it has everything to do with us because Galatians 3 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham is going to come to the Gentiles. That's us. Through Christ, the offspring of Abraham. You guys know if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you see the whole genealogy, right? Abraham is there, and then Isaac, and you get the whole thread, and it leads to Jesus. So the connection here for us is massive. We need Abraham to be with Sarah, because ultimately it's through Abraham's descendant that Jesus is going to come. And that's the only way you and I can be redeemed from the curse of the law. Jesus has to come and hang on a tree. If he doesn't, and he doesn't purchase your redemption, if he doesn't redeem you and release you from the curse, then you are under an obligation before God to live perfectly. you got to be righteous. you got to obey the whole law without a flaw 
in order to get right with God. That's the curse of the law. The curse is, be perfect, you can't. Do everything exactly like God tells you to. I don't have the ability to do it. That's the curse of the law, and that's why it leads to death. The curse of the law is obey perfectly or die eternally. So here, if there's no Isaac, then there's no Jesus. If Sarah was with Abimelech, then no baby with Abraham. And that means no Isaac, which means no Jesus, which means no Gentiles being redeemed from the curse of the law, which means you have an obligation to be perfect before God, which you can't do, which means you're cursed. So you've got to feel the crisis. This is a crisis that's relevant to you this morning, to me this morning. But let's just be real for a moment. It doesn't impact us like it should, because we know the end of the story, don't we? <laughs> we, end in the, and we know the end of the story, so it doesn't land on us with the same tension, with the same, no, Abimelech can't be with Sarah. Sarah's got to be with Abraham. It doesn't land on us because we already know the end of the story. In fact, it makes me kind of wonder why the Bible is so long. Why not just Genesis 1 and 2, creation, Genesis 3, fall, Genesis 4, Jesus, redemption, right? Why drag it out, God? Why 2,000 years? Well, I think it's because God loves stories. God loves to reveal himself in the form of stories, and God created you to love stories. That's why when you read a book, you don't just read the first chapter and then the last chapter, or do you? (laughs) You don't get your movie and watch the first three minutes or four minutes or five minutes and then skip to the end. You you watch the whole thing because you like the story. You want to see how the story develops. And so that's what God is doing here in Genesis. He is telling us his redemptive love story. And he's doing it all on this stage called the earth. Genesis 1, he created a massive stage, earth, for this act to be dramatized on. And then he wrote a script And then he created and casted characters and actors. And every one of you are one of them that he created for his redeeming story. And then he directs the play, and then he acts as the main character in the story. And he invites us to watch the story gradually unfold so that we can get to know him. I mean, he could have told us facts, right? Drop down a systematic theology book, tell me the 10 most important things about God, give me the definitions. But he doesn't do that, does he? It's a drama that unfolds. It's a story. God wants us to see how he works and how people, actors and actresses in his story, are going to interact with him so that we can grow to know him and love him and believe in him and walk with him in ways that are abundantly amazing. So in light of all of this, In light of this play unfolding before us and this tension and this drama of Abimelech having Sarah, I think verse 3 is the most important verse in this story. In fact, I think the first two words, the first two words of verse 3 are the most important words in this drama. Do you see them? But God... But God. Contrast this with what just happened in verse 2. Abraham said, Sarah's my sister, but God. Abimelech came and took Sarah, but God. I mean, it's almost as quickly as the crisis arises and unfolds, 
The resolution steps forward. <laughs> They're separated, but God. Sarah's not with Abraham, but God. God is there on the scene. Abraham gives his wife away to save his own skin, but God. Sarah is swept away to live with, Ab- with, live, live with Abimelech, but God. There's no more hope for Isaac to be born, but God. No possibility for Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law, but God. You will die in your sins without Isaac, crushed by the wrath of God, separated from him, without hope, confused, lost, fearful, blind, sick, tormented forever, but God. The two sweetest words, I think, in this whole chapter When you read, but God, you need to feel his personal interest in you. As a Gentile, it's going to be redeemed from the curse of the law. We need to feel that personal care for God, that he steps in and intervenes so quickly in this story. Listen, the the but God right there is a game changer for all of us sitting here this morning. So what does God do when he shows up on the scene? Well, what he does is he shows up to Abimelech in a dream. And he doesn't pull any punches with Abimelech either. His opening words to Abimelech are, Behold, you are a dead man. (laughs) If you're going to have an encounter with God, those are not the words you want to hear out of the gate. Fear not would be nice. I'm here to talk to you. Anything, introduce yourself, something. Don't begin with, you are a dead man. But God just cuts right to the chase in the story. It seems Abimelech is going to certainly die. He's going to die. And he tells Abimelech why. Why? He says, Abimelech, it's because Sarah is another man's wife. So you're going to die because you can't do that, Abimelech. It's wrong. So Abimelech is ready to die. But Abimelech has a response that is a bit of a surprise as he pleads his innocence before God. Look at verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not say, say, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So he pleads his case. I didn't know. Uh, He must have been trembling with fear that he's about to be a dead man. He pleads his case, and then God's response in verse 6 is, Almost comical? Yes, God says. I know. <laughs> I'm Abimelech. I just got told I'm a dead man. I plead my case, and God's response is, yeah, I, I know you're innocent. I know it. And she's like, what is God doing? Like, what is the point of bringing us into this conversation? What's the point of God unfolding it that way? If he already knows he's innocent, why does he just come to Abimelech and say, hey, Abimelech, I know you didn't mean it. I know you're innocent, but she's actually married to another guy. He doesn't, though. He lets the drama unfold. He wants us to enter into the tension of the reality that Abimelech is going to die only so we can find out that God already knows that he's innocent. And then after Abimelech takes a sigh of relief that he's not going to die, which is a wonderful thing for Abimelech, his sigh of relief, we hear God tell him why he's not going to die. And we hear God tell him why, which is so crazy, why he didn't do it in the first place. And all the credit goes to who? To God, right? So we, we, get, we get the picture here, what God really thinks about a man taking another woman's wife. It's worthy of death. It's very bad. It's wicked. It is wrong. God says in verse 6 that it's a sin primarily against me. God says, not necessarily against Abraham or Sarah, primarily against me. 
And then he just pours this grace down on Abimelech saying, guess what, dude? The only reason you didn't touch her, the only reason you're innocent, is because I intervened. I'm the one that stopped you from touching her. Otherwise, you would be a dead man. And if you look at verse 17, it seems possible that God caused caused Abimelech to get sick. And that's why Abraham has to pray for his healing. So God made Abraham sick. Abimelech sick so that he would not approach Sarah. So God intervenes. God gets the credit. God's the one that stops Abimelech. God is the one who is really sustaining and rescuing him from death. Now I want to just take a little application here for a moment. Because I wonder how often God has stepped in and stopped you from sinning against him. I wonder how often I wonder how often he has stepped in and spared you of the consequences of sin or the pain of sin or the regret of sin. I wonder how many times and how many different ways, how many creative ways, God has intervened and stopped you from stumbling headlong into some crippling sin pattern. I just wonder. I think one day when we get to heaven, either there or when we're walking the new earth, Among the many things we're going to do, one of them is going to be Jesus pulling us aside. And he's going to say, hey, come over here. I want to tell you something. Do you remember that time your car broke down? I did that because where you were going, you would have ended up sinning. And I wanted to stop it. Do you remember that text message you got from that friend of yours with that Bible verse that encouraged your soul and stopped you from doing, remember? That was me. I prompted them to do that. And I think God is going to go on and on with stories of times that he did things, maybe even cause you to get sick, to keep you from sinning, to keep you from running headlong into patterns of sin. And he's going to share this with us over and over again. I also think this story here has an application because it's an amazing picture of God stepping in to rescue someone from death. Does that sound familiar at all? God steps in. And he says to Abimelech, yes, Abimelech, you're innocent, but you're only innocent because of me. But because of that now, you are not going to die. He saves Abimelech from certain death by intervening for him in his everyday life. I mean, that is just gospel truth. God intervening on behalf of sinners, making us righteous or not innocent, and then saving us from death. So God communicates all this to Abimelech. And then we see Abimelech's response in verse 8. In verse 8, Abimelech gets up a little extra early that morning. Maybe he never went to sleep. If I were him, I probably would not have gone to sleep. And he gets right to work fixing the situation. He brings his servants together and explains the situation of what happened. And it says, immediately, everyone is afraid. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants And told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So Abimelech gets straight to work fixing this wrong. And he immediately goes to Abraham with God's perspective of him having Sarah as his almost wife. 
This is wrong. He calls it sin. He says it's a great sin. And Abimelech almost seems puzzled or confused as to why Abraham would have done this to him in the first place. So I'm like, Abraham, you know better. Why why did you do this? Like, you should know better, Abraham. What's your deal? And so we applaud Abimelech, don't we? Well done, right? He, 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 He did what God asked him to do. He did it completely. He did it so that the right, the wrong was made right. And then... Verse 11, we hear Abraham's response to all this. He's confronted, almost almost Nathan and David-like. And then here is Abraham's response, verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because. (laughs) Dangerous words, unless it's followed by, I am a sinner. (laughs) So he's going to make three statements as to why he did it. And then I'm going to tease those out and get to some heart things that I think are here. So three things. Let's see what he says. Abraham said, I did it because I thought. Here's the first one. There is no fear of God at all in this place. So he thought, they don't fear God. And, I think the second one, they will kill me because of my wife, so he doesn't want to die. And then he says, besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she has become my wife. And when God caused me to wander from the father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which you come, say of me, he is my brother. So I see three clear excuses. One is, they don't fear God. That's why I did it. They're going to kill me. And after all, she is my half-sister. Now, I just want to bring heart application. And this is where it gets a little, this is, I I got it. I'm stretching a little bit. You can disagree with where I take this. But I think there's some insight in here that helps us to see Abraham's heart. And I'm always cautious when I'm trying to look at someone's heart when I don't know their heart. But there's some things he says that I think give us a glimpse into his heart. Does that make sense? So I'm doing this with some caution. But the first is, it seems like I got five. First is judgment. It seems like he's judging the Philistines, at least judging Abimelech. He says there's no fear of God in this place at all. Was that true? When God showed up and talked, what did it say to the people? How did they respond? They were afraid. So he's wrong. He judged them. There was a fear of God in the place. I also see a lack of faith on Abraham's part when he says, they will kill me. Instead of saying they're going to kill me, he should have said, oh, wait, I know God has a promise that he's going to protect me so that I can have a baby who's going to bless all the nations, (laughs) right? He didn't see that. Instead, he just was fearful for his own life. So he's got a lack of faith. Number three, I think he's making excuses, calling her his sister. I mean, come on, it's his wife first. Like, that just doesn't fly. Like, that's just wrong to do that. So there's, there's an excuse that he makes. I also see a little bit of blame. Do you see where he says, God caused me to wander from my father's house? Almost like, well, I wouldn't be in this situation if I stayed at home. But God made me wander. So I went. And when I went, I had to have an excuse for not getting killed. And so it's almost like he's, he's pushing this off on God. And then lastly, I see some pity or maybe manipulation of Sarah. When he says, this is the kindness that you must do for me. It's almost like he's manipulating her, twisting her arm to say, look, if you really love me, if you really love me, this is what you'll do. You'll spare my life by telling people that you are my brother. And so I think this doesn't paint Abraham in a very good light. And I think it's recorded for two reasons. One is so that we will see that Abraham is a sinner, so we don't put him up anywhere higher than he needs to be. And so we recognize that he is a sinner just like us. 
just like us. I mean, don't we stumble in the same ways? I mean, these aren't foreign to me. Don't we judge others? Either talking or not talking to someone or interacting or not interacting with someone based on what we think about them, judging them without really knowing and talking to them? Don't we have fear sometimes because we don't have faith, trusting God? How often do we make excuses or rationalize our sin? It really wasn't that bad. Or if it wasn't for those circumstances, then I wouldn't have. Or we blame others for our sin. Or try to manipulate other people to help us get things that we want. So I think Abraham is just representing us. I mean, there's a whole sermon. There's a whole application time just to consider how much we are like Abraham. I also think we're given this insight into Abraham's life so that we can compare and contrast Abraham with, a, with Abimelech. I think we're supposed to hold up their lives, their words, what they do to one another and compare and contrast them. Abimelech, fearing God. Abraham, doesn't seem to be. Abimelech, innocent in these matters. Abraham, did things that ought not to be done. A pagan Philistine king is innocent while our covenant father of the faith is doing things that ought not to be done. So we've got someone who's innocent and someone who is not innocent. When we read all this, we seems that we could say Abimelech seems more righteous in his actions than, Abimelech, than Abraham, does he not? Seems that way. I want to applaud Abimelech and I want to give Abraham a spanking. I mean, that's just where it goes. Like, they're, they're, they're moving in opposite directions with their behavior. So in light of this, in light of this dichotomy between them, as we turn to verses 14 to 18, we're going to see an exchange of cattle and sheep and male servants and female servants. We're going to see the exchange of a thousand pieces of silver. And I think it's pretty clear that there are some mistakes in our manuscript. I don't say this often, but I think that either Moses mixed up names or when chapter 20 was transcribed over the years, the man who, or women who transcribed them must have messed up because, well, let me show you why. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. Now that is clearly a typo mistake, either by Abraham or by the scribes later on. Because what it should say is then Abraham took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abimelech. Now, I think the mistake could be because the word Abimelech starts with A-B and Abraham starts with A-B. So the scribe was probably just writing and they just, oh, and just, oh, and of course, and it only makes sense that the righteous person, the innocent person would get the sheep and the oxen, right? And the silver. And the guy who did things that ought not to be done should be the one giving them to the innocent one. So there's a mistake there. Look at verse 15. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where you please. Obviously, another mix-up. Abraham is the one who went to Abimelech and said, Look, it's all yours. Tell me where you want me to go. We got verse 16. Another mistake. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And I'm pretty certain that it was Abraham who gave a thousand pieces of silver to Abimelech for what he had done. 
And then you get down to verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. Look, Abimelech's innocent. He's the prayer, not Abraham. So I'm pretty sure every time they got it backwards. It should say, then Abimelech prayed to God, and God forgave Abraham. So this is a disturbing passage for me. I've never seen one with so many mistakes. So confusing. I mean, after all, it would be utterly insane for Abraham, of all people, to walk away with sheep and oxen and money. I mean, Abimelech, yes. Abraham, no. It makes sense that Abraham is not going to be the one praying for Abimelech. It makes perfect sense that Abimelech is the one who's praying to God. I mean, there is no logical explanation at all for Abraham behaving this way and ending up being blessed. None. No explanation at all. So there's mistakes. Unless, unless somehow God's promise to bless Abraham is more powerful than Abraham's sin. I mean, this is either totally messed up unless God's economy to keep his promises to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham supersedes Abraham's sin. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense unless God's plan for redeeming us from the curse of the law is unstoppable no matter how Abraham behaves. Listen, this makes no sense at all unless God is a covenant-keeping God who seals his covenant with Abraham with blood— by cutting animals in half, and then stays committed to his plan despite Abraham's behavior. That's the only way the story could ever make sense. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect to see. The only way this could make sense is if God is on some kind of crazy mission to redeem us from the curse of the law by sending Christ to redeem us and to set us free. And he's so fixated on that that he says, Abraham, even though you did what was unthinkable, I'm still going to bless you. I'm going to give you Sarah back so that the promise moves forward. It would take serious, abundant grace for God to bless Abraham, to get Sarah back to Abraham, when Abraham deserves to be punished, is it not? God would have to be very committed to showing off his grace to do something like this. So much grace to intervene by stopping Abimelech from sinning with Sarah. So much grace to speak to Abimelech in a dream. So much grace to overlook Abraham's sin. So much grace to bless Abraham with sheep and oxen and silver and servants. So much grace to listen to Abraham pray for Abimelech's healing and then to heal Abimelech. And the only way this makes sense is if God is trying to make a point. And the point would have to be something like, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Just to make sure I am being clear, there are no mistakes in your Bible. And every time you read the word Abimelech, it meant to say Abimelech. And every time it said Abraham, it meant to say Abraham. But humanly speaking, it's wrong. It makes no sense. But God, everything changes. But God, it's a game changer. But God acted in grace. God acted in keeping his promises, and God acted in keeping his covenant with Abraham. And that is such good news for us. God resolved the crisis. 
God came in and intervened. Didn't change the plan. Didn't erase the plan. Stuck with his plan to pour grace upon grace down upon his people and all nations through Christ. And besides all this, one other thing to point out. I think all this happens this way. The purpose could be that this story, I'm mean, only 20 chapters into redemptive history, right? We're 20 chapters into the Bible. Maybe God is early in redemptive history introducing the idea of someone who is innocent blessing the person who sins against him. I mean, could that be relevant at all? The innocent one blessing the sinner. The sinner being blessed by the innocent one. The one who is sinned against blesses the sinner. Is that not insane? That doesn't happen. And so God's priming the pump in Genesis 20. Hey, let me get to this idea in your head. Let me use it through a story. I'm going to tell you about Abimelech. Let me give you an idea so that when Jesus comes, you won't get caught off guard. There are times where, and there will be one time ultimately, ultimately, where someone who is innocent will be sinned against, and then the innocent one will bless the sinner. And we know exactly who did that for us. I mean, that is the whole gospel story. We offend Jesus. He blesses us. We shake our fist at God. He pours down mercy on us. We do the same sin over and over again, offending him, sinning against him. And what does he do? He forgives over and over and over again. The innocent one blesses the sinners. This is the good news of Genesis 20. I couldn't sleep last night thinking about this. Like, this is such good news. Genesis 20 is so alive and real for us as it foreshadows and paints a picture of Jesus and his coming. And so, church, I want to encourage you today. Whatever your perspective is of the grace of God, it's too small. It's too small. My understanding of the grace of God is too small. It's too limited. It's too half-baked. I don't get it. Church, may we really believe God's grace is unstoppable. That when you're in covenant with him through the blood of Christ, grace goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from his promises. That is really good news. So I want to pray for us and pray that this week our view of grace would be enlarged. I pray that we'd see his grace for as marvelous as it is. I pray that we would just grab a hold of the two little words, but God, and consider our lives prior to that, and then but God and what happened after that. Because that's really where the gospel comes into play. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song together. God, your grace is amazing. It is abundant. It is beyond our understanding. God, when we think of grace or when we give grace or extend grace to others, it is nothing compared to yours. Nothing. And we thank you for the truth that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We thank you for this story in Genesis that helps us to see the audacity of grace, the craziness of grace. And Lord Jesus, we come to you and we cling to you and to your cross and to your blood. We are grateful that we are included in the new covenant through Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for being 
coming a curse for us so that we could be included in the blessing of Abraham this morning. And I ask God that this week you would give each one of us larger hearts for understanding and receiving your grace. May we enjoy your grace. May we honor you for your grace. May we praise you for your grace. May we get down low on the ground and worship before you because of your grace. May we rejoice in your grace. May we extend your grace to others. May we speak of your grace. May we sing of your grace. I pray this week we would enjoy you and your grace for your glory and for your fame, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.